0: Okay, open up your Bibles to Revelation chapter 21. We're going to pick it up in verse 6. We will begin in prayer. By the Lord, we are here because we need to hear from you desperately, and we want our thoughts and our perceptions of what is to come, Lord, formed by you, not by popular Thoughts, or by what everyone else thinks, or maybe even our own misconceptions about eternity, Lord, we we want you to show us what you have in store for us. So, Lord, would you please guide us and direct us this day, and help us, Lord, to understand what awaits us, Lord, in eternity. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Alright, guys. So last week, and at the end of chapter twenty, uh, we looked at what the great white throne judgment was going to look like. You know, it was going to be a time when Satan himself and all the lost that followed him would have their eternal sentences pronounced as they were cast into the lake of fire, you know, for all eternity. You know, once that event is completed, you know, we step into a moment of history, a time that will officially, it's basically going to offend, or offend, it's basically going to end with the closing of the millennial reign, you know and now eternity is gonna officially begin. It's a time where Satan is gone, sin is gone, the judgment has taken place and only the righteous are gonna remain with God. So the only question that we have at that point, if we've gone through the millennial reign is, where and what will that be? What is that gonna look like? We know the answer is gonna be in heaven, but I think honestly, as I've been thinking about it this week, you know, I really do think that the majority of believers uh, or people who go to church, I should say, really have very little understanding about what the Bible really reveals about heaven, what, what heaven really is. We have thoughts and we have images in our minds of what we think heaven is going to be like, but it's not necessarily what the Bible says. It's kind of like bits and pieces of truth and mixed in with a lot of popular opinions of what we think heaven is going to be like. Uh, Before I get into this study, though, I did a little bit of Google research. took me about 3.71 seconds, I think, according to it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, just just wait for the pictures. Okay? (laughs) How many Americans actually believe in heaven? And according to the Pew Research Center, they said that 73% of respondents believed in heaven. What was interesting is what they believe about heaven. So, I have a picture for you. Okay, I have a chart. You know, what it shows is that two-thirds of the adults believed believe that deceased people are re- reunited with others in heaven. So that was good. Had some good stuff there. But look at some of their other beliefs here. So they believe that in heaven that you're free from suffering, 69%. That's good. Are reunited with loved ones who died previously, 65%, good, can meet God, 62%, have perfectly healthy bodies. are reunited with pets or animals that they knew on earth, 48%. Can see (laughs) that's it's all worth it. Uh, Can see what's happening on earth, 44%. Can become angels, 43%. Are able to have relationships with people who are still living on earth, 25%. And can choose whether they want to stop existing. 15 percent. So you can see, you know, it started out good, but then it just kindly digressed as it kept on going on just strange views concerning heaven. So that's why it's important that you go straight to the source of what heaven is, and that comes through the Word of God. It's not based on popular opinion or what other people think. We need to understand what God says about heaven, and that's where we pick it up in Revelation chapter 21, So verse 1, it says, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. When it says a new heaven and a new earth, new is not in the sense of the current heaven and earth completely being disregarded, completely being cast away. It's not going to have a completely different heaven and earth take its place but rather a heaven and earth that will be purified by fire and will have a new freshness to it that had not previously existed. You know, David Guzik, I I like his explanation of this. He says the ancient Greek word translated new here means new in character or freshness. It doesn't mean recent or new in time. This isn't the next heaven and next earth. This is the better heaven and the better earth replacing the old so when we talk about the new heaven and the new earth that's what we're talking about not another it's not like you know god just wads this up and throws it away and starts with a whole new one it he's into restoration i started laughing this morning i i thought about irene's recent upgrade on her phone and uh, she had, she—it's funny, you know. When you have a bunch of kids and you have your own phones, it, we just kind of pass things down as as other get replaced. And you know, she had had like a iPhone 5S for I don't know how many years, and the updates weren't working anymore, and <laughs> having problems. The camera was terrible; and she couldn't see it, and all these different things. Right? Well, Melinda had upgraded. We upgraded her phone. I don't know a year or two ago, and she got the 13 or whatever it was. And we still had this other one kind of hanging around. She thought came to her one day she's like why am i messing with this phone i can just you know put everything on this other one and have it and it just made me laugh because she's like look at all the things you can do and it wasn't just new emojis that she was thrilled about but it was you know look at all the things you can do and look at this camera how it works and all these things and i'm just laughing because that's a seven okay you know and now they're up to 14s i'm like man your mind would be blown if you saw the 14s and the cameras and everything else that are there But that kind of is the thought behind this, that, you know, we look at this heaven and this earth that exists now and we we stare in amazement at the heavens and we look at, you know, we have these telescopes now, the web telescope, and we're seeing all these galaxies and we're seeing all these things and it's like, wow, God made such an amazing universe. He made such an amazing creation and we look at bodies and just how he's formed everything and we're just blown away by that, but we need to understand that there is going to be a better heaven and a better earth. An eternity, that's going to wait. And it's not going to be like from an iPhone 5 to a 7. You know, it's going to go even beyond from iPhone 5 to, you know, the 14. If if we keep on thinking about phones, it's like taking it back 50 years where it was rotary phones to the latest iPhone. And how that would blow our minds if that happened at that time. We couldn't even understand it. You know, how can this thing do all of this? I mean, computers weren't even in existence. How can it do it? Well, that's about what we're going to experience on a much larger scale. You know, and it it makes me think of how what we as Christians will experience, you know. If, If the Lord allows these bodies to one day die, if he does not return prior to that point, after our death, our bodies will continue to deteriorate. Okay, they'll continue to return back to ash as our souls reside with the Lord. But at the rapture, these same bodies, not different bodies, these same bodies, no matter how much they've broken down and deteriorated, they're going to be resurrected and permanently transformed into the bodies that are suitable for eternity. So the same bodies instantly upgraded and reformed. We think about the passage, you know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where it says, Behold, I tell you a mystery, we shall not all sleep, But we shall be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed for this corruptible must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality or as ralry says immorality and i they made fun of him at a conference i saw there but you know we must put on immortality They're in essence the same bodies that we lived and died in, yet they are raised without the corruption of the fall and made suitable for eternity in perfection. That's the upgrade. God loves to do that. He loves to take what was originally done and even corrupt it through sin and things that, you know, he never designed it for, but the t- deteriorating effects of it. And he loves making it, redeeming it, and making it better than we could ever imagine. And heaven and earth will experience much of the same thing. In fact, the apostle Peter wrote something about this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, it says... But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat, both the earth and the works that are are in it will be burnt up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking forth and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat?" Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. They will be dissolved through fire. You know, there's a lot of people who point out the fact of, you know, we're, especially in this generation, we're very concerned about, or many people are very concerned about global warming. Warming. And what I did, I, I wanted to understand it better. So once again, I did my Google research this morning. And what I found out is it has increased the temperature on an average of 0.14 degrees every decade for the last however many decades, since the 1800s that they've been measuring this. 0.14 degrees is what's gone up with the global warming. This is gonna be much faster This is going to melt with fervent heat. If you talk about global warming, this is going to be global warming in a really, really bad way. So maybe they don't understand it, but they're very prophetic in what is going to come to pass. It's going to become at that moment the new heavens and the new earth that's going to forever exist in perfection. I was thinking about you, Jim, when I was thinking about this fervent heat that dissolves everything in this purged by fire that's going to take place. And I think about, you know, just what you saw in the forest service and, the, and what would happen when there was a massive fire and the destruction, and yet the new birth that would come from that and how those nutrients would go back in the soil. And you would see these things. It would take time, which this will obviously not take time, but you see the new growth and how it's even better than before in many different ways. Heaven and earth as we know it will still be recognizable but it's going to be greatly upgraded beyond anything we could have ever imagined. Do you guys remember before there was like 20 or 30 shows of like home renovations? Now, if you have cable or streaming or whatever you use, there are so many, and I still enjoy watching them. I love it when they buy houses and flip them and they do all these things to it. And I think about, wow, I'd like to do that. And then I realize I can't. (laughs) (laughs) And you know, they have all these things, right? But remember when the first one came out? Do you remember the Extreme Home Makeover with Ty Craig I think his name was, and it was the whole thing where he would pull up, you know, they would take this family that had great needs and their house was too small or whatever it was, and they would ship them off to Disneyland and they'd go play in for two or three days and the whole neighborhood would come running down the street and they'd have all kinds of construction crews and then remember they'd bring them back, you know, and they would block the house by a big bus, right? And then they would have everybody with a bullhorn. And they're like, driver, move that bus. And then everything, you know, they pull out. And they see this house. They're like, ah, you know, and they'd go and do it. All right. Heaven's going to be a lot better. Okay, It's going to be a lot better than that. Notice also that John states, the he- first, I'm sorry, the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Notice that. The first heaven and the first earth. Just like we read in Peter's epistle, and the Lord himself also referred to this. In Luke chapter 21, 33, it says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will no means pass away. Isn't it interesting when you think about that term, we read that and we're familiar with that, but the, the term pass away, when someone dies, what do we say? Johnny passed away. We, we, we think of it as, you know, a death that occurred. And yes, it's true. He died. His body finally failed. But that same body will be resurrected and upgraded in eternity. But we say passed away. And Jesus was like, heaven and earth will pass away. It's going to be upgraded. It's going to be resurrected in a sense. There's going to be these things that are going to happen. As a side note, we also learned from this passage that the new earth will not have any sea. And that's a huge change. Just think about that when two-thirds of our earth right now is covered by water. Think of how that affects the climate. Think about all the things, you know, our natural sources for drinking, everything. But that's, it's not going to be necessary. You know, in the Bible, the sea is understood many times to be the place of the dead or where evil resides. You think about Revelation chapter 20, verse 13, it said, The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged each according to his works. We were talking about that last week. So, in a Jewish mindset especially, they associated evil and dead with the sea. Now, some people come to the conclusion that the new heaven and the new earth will coincide with the millennial reign. They will say that this will happen at the same time. But there are so many references about the sea's existence during the millennial reign that it seems to rule that possibility out. I just pulled up one of them. You know, Psalm 72, verse 8, it says, He shall have dominion also from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And there's multitudes of different references about the sea during the millennial kingdom. So this cannot be at the same time because at the new heaven and the new earth, there will not be any sea, no oceans. It's easy to understand which earth the Bible is referring to, right? New heaven, new earth. We, we all get it. Okay, I, I know which earth you're talking about, but some people are confused as to which heaven. Because, you know, in the Bible, it talks about three different heavens and not like in a Mormon sense where they have different levels of heavens, you know, that you graduate from and some people really, really, really bad people get on the lowest one. That's not what it's talking about. This is talking about the sense that, you know, you have the third heaven, which the Bible refers to that, especially in Paul's writings, you see that referred to that in the sense of God's dwelling place. That is, that, that is not affected by any of this. That remains the same. But the first and second heavens, which are referring to the sky, which is the atmosphere in which we can see the blue outside today. We'll see that for a few more weeks. And then the, uh, you have the second heavens, which is the outer space, planets, stars, those types of things. Those are the heavens that will be made new. And again, you think about what's going on right now with all this interest with, it really is amazing to look at these images that are coming back from the Webb telescope, right? It's gone further than ever. And they're seeing things, and they're like, ah, oh, this is just crazy what, how far this goes. And it's, it's ruining a lot of their preconceived ideas of how the universe was formed, and all this stuff is finally happening. God's like, eh, thanks for building the telescope. <laughs> you know, you can kind of see that doesn't pan out the way you thought it did. But think of all those things being made new. Then John goes on to describe the new Jerusalem that descends from heaven. It says, verse 2, Then I, John, saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. First of all, notice it's a holy city prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is meant to be a very vivid description of how beautiful this city's entrance will be at that time. Just think of the tradition of the bride being prepared for her husband before the wedding. We still have that same tradition. You know, the bride is, you have the bride's maids and you keep them separate from the husband. I mean, generally speaking, uh, it's interesting. I, the last couple of weddings that I did, that wasn't the case. It was really strange because now they take the pictures before. So it's still some of that moment, honestly. It really still some of that moment for the groom because he's already seen his bride. Man, I'll tell you, I, I, the best weddings that I can remember doing, officiating, are when the groom sees his bride walking down that aisle for the first time. Everybody else is watching the bride. I'm watching the groom to see how he reacts, you know, to finally seeing his bride all fixed up. Jay Vernon McGee, I was listening to him this week, and he said, you know, friends, I have never seen an ugly bride. <laughs> He goes. I have seen them before and after, and thought otherwise, but I have never seen an ugly bride because they're dolled up, and they're you know they're, they're they look beautiful. And he uses that imagery of when we see the New Jerusalem coming, we'll see that, and we'll be like, it'll blow our minds how beautiful it is. You know. I want you to notice also the word prepared in that verse. It says, Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. That word prepared is the same Greek word that Jesus used when he made this promise to us. In John chapter 14, verses 2 through 3, it says, I go to prepare a place for you and if I go to prepare a place for you I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am there you may be also here we see the prepared the finality of it it's finished prepared and Jesus says I go to prepare that place for us it's the same exact word in verse 3 John says this and I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. You know, the tabernacle is always representative of God's presence with his people. We had a funny thing happen this week, and, and I run into this sometimes when I talk to people and they want to show me their spirituality by the words that they use. And somebody was, mentioned, was talking about this church and... And they responded, we had a question about something about the usage for the women's Bible study, which, remember, starts this Thursday at 1030, right here, okay, for those watching online. Okay, it's going to happen then. Uh, but in response to that, one of the persons mentioned, oh, we will not be at the temple that day. And and I get that every once in a while. People are like, you know, they refer to the church building as the temple, as if God's special presence is in that place. But... You know, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit now. You know, the, this place is, we're grateful for it, but it's, it's not the dwelling place of God. It's just where believers gather together. And there's a specialness in that. There's something that's good about that, but it's not the place that, that contains God. But when you think about, you know, behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, think about all the different times where the tabernacle or the presence of God was in a very special way. You think about, you know, during the time when, before the fall with Adam and Eve, when he walked with them in the coolness of the day. Okay? There, were, his presence was with them, unhindered. Then you have the tabernacle that eventually became the temple, which contained the Holy of Holies. That was a very special place where God's presence would be found. Now, like I mentioned, you have his believers in the church. You, 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 we are the temple of God. He dwells in us and with us. And yet, in all those various ways, it's, what was important about it was his presence. It was his presence. And right there in eternity, it says, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. Physically with them. in the new jerusalem above every other blessing and benefit which there will be more than we can possibly list we will be his people and he shall be our god and he will dwell with us permanently that's the greatest blessing of all and the results of that continual presence in our lives will be as we read in verse four the results of having God with us is, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. The former things have passed away. Things that were just a staple of life. Difficulties. Sorrow. Crying, death, pain. These are things that happen throughout life. Every week we come and share our trials with one another, (laughs) our difficulties, our pains. And it should lead us to the point where we look forward and say there will come a time where none of these things will be allowed entrance into our life anymore. No more. There will be the no mores in the new heavens and the new earth. Now remember, during the millennial kingdom, that's not a promise that, that is taking place at that time, for the thousand years. It is after that time. This is the new heaven and the new earth where that will take place. Verse five, then he sat on the, then he who sat on the throne said, "Behold, I make all things new." And he said to me, "Write, for these words are true and faithful." So he who sat on the throne, Jesus, behold, I make, I make all things new. Don't ever forget that. Only Jesus can make all things new. And we have to remember that when it comes to our dealings with other people and ourselves. We want to help them become new. We want to help them, you know, get out of the predicament they're in or the bad habits or the self-destruction or, you know, whatever rut they're in in life. We want to fix them. And we do our best to help them. And it's, I believe, it's good. We do it for the right motivation. We want to help them. But ultimately, it's only Jesus that makes all things new. He's very clear. He doesn't say, we do this together, (laughs) you know. This is him saying, I make all things new. It is his responsibility. It's him who does it. He said to John as as if John was just kind of sitting there in amazement at that moment, kind of zoning out, just thinking about maybe the new heavens and the new earth and the no more crying. And, you know, as he's sitting here on an abandoned island, you know, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more things. And he's just like, oh, this is amazing. He's like, John, John, bring it back in, grab your pen. Write this down because these words are faithful and true, and that is the Word of God. He says, hey, don't ever lose your trust in the Word of God. Right now, we live in a generation that does not trust the Word of God on a large scale. They don't believe it to be true. They don't believe it to be something that is for this particular day and age they think that it's something that is full of myths and stories and they they have their place in society but it's not transformative it's not living it's a dead document kind of like they look at the constitution now it's not dead it's living it's the living word of god it makes me think of of us becoming born again when you think of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That's the problem that people have with us once we're born again. They still see us. <laughs> they still remember us. They remember all the crummy things we did. They remember all the times we broke our promises. They remember all the things that we said. They remember our sinfulness. But they see us. And yet Christ says, I have made you a new creation. See, the world still sees us, but Christ sees who we are now. We know the change that has occurred in us. We understand that we are a new creation. We're still marred by sin, no doubt. We still have things that we're wrestling through, and we will until the day we die. But, or the Lord returns, but he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Because it is Christ who says, I make all things new. It only happens through Jesus. Jesus. You can have a person who changes some behavior temporarily. Maybe I see this happen in, in uh, marriages that are on the rocks. You know, finally, you know, the guy gets that, that letter or gets kicked out of the house or the wife or whatever it is, you know, where it's like the ultimatum is made and it looks like the wedding, or I'm sorry, the marriage is over. There's no chance for reconciliation. And all of a sudden, they want to get real serious now. And they'll call me up like, you know, hey, what do I do? What do I do? You know, this whole thing is happening. I've had many conversations and things like that. All of a sudden, they're like, I'm going to change behavior. I'm not going to drink anymore. I'm not going to golf in every Sunday. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to make changes in my life. I'm a new man. They're not a new man because those habits creep in, especially when they realize that they don't get the response that they wanted for these temporary changes they've made. Those, those motivations are very short-lived and it becomes evident that they're not a new creation. It's the same old man that just made some more promises that they just broke again. And unfortunately, that spouse has lived through that many, many times and they're not willing to give them the chance. My heart does break for the men or women that really do try to make those changes and you see them go through months, maybe years of trying to reconcile their relationship. But so much damage has been done that it's very, very hard for that spouse to trust them. I'll tell you the ones that I've seen that have actually, there's been reconciliation. Even within this ministry, I've been privileged to see it a couple of times. It started with Jesus. That spouse was not just making some new changes in their life, they were born again. And they were becoming a new creation from the inside out. And I always tell them, you can't do anything on on the damage that has been done. You can only ask for forgiveness, but now your number one relationship is you and the Lord. And the only thing that will prove to them that this time it's going to change is if they see you continue to grow in the Lord. If they see what Christ is doing in you, there will still be hope for your marriage. If they do not see that, you will fail them again. It has to be Christ in you. It has to be him making you a new creation, capable of being the husband that you want to be. They have to see something beyond your efforts. He makes all things new. and he's going to do the same with all of creation. The new heaven and the new earth, not just us as born again believers, but in creation. One commentator points out the beauty of redemption. It talks about he says, our instinct is to be so, is to be romant- I'm sorry. Our instinct is to romantically consider innocence as man's perfect state and wish Adam would never have done what he did. So we look back like romantically at this. We're like, I wish Adam had never done what he did. I I wish there was never sin and we would be perfect as human beings. And that's the highest level. That's what he's explaining. We think that's like the highest level. But we fail to recognize that redeemed man is greater than innocent man. That we gain more in Jesus than than we ever lost in Adam. God's perfect state is one of redemption, not innocence. Just think of that, that quote right there. We gain more in Jesus than we ever lost in Adam. That is a profound observation. God's perfect state is one of redemption, not innocence. Because it's Christ in us. Through redemption, we gain more than we lost in Adam. That's powerful. Then Jesus says in verse 6, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. He says, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And at this point, think about all that's taken place. The judgments have already passed, the Great White Throne judgments are done, the Bema Seat judgment is done. And now it's Jesus enjoying the fruits of his sacrifice as he celebrates with those who overcame that judgment and that eternal condemnation through his blood. To them he says, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. This is the promise to the redeemed in eternity. Nothing will ever get in the way of that happening ever again. Nothing. Sin will not separate you from God. See, right now, we can be born again. You can be on your way to heaven. But sin sin still separates you from God. You know that, don't you? We know that when we enter into sin, we feel distant from God. We feel like the connection is broken we feel like something has taken place that has interrupted that relationship with my lord and until that sin is taken care of and and confessed we don't feel like the connection is there in eternity there will not be any disconnect ever the presence will always be there there will be nothing that will interrupt that relationship ever again Think about the refreshing, na- refreshing nature of fresh water to someone who is parched or dying of thirst. You know, it's funny lately, because you know I've been having to work out back a lot lately, just be- based on our crew, it's what we have to do to make it through each day. And I come home and I am like thirsty. And my kids and my wife, I thank God that you know I typically have a meal waiting for us, although our dinner time is much later than the average family. Uh, but there's water always with our meal ice cold water and just this week you know I I I always get home and I make my own cup of water and she's like you already got water out there it's like you uh, you don't understand I need two cups (laughs) okay I am thirsty because I don't even have time to think about it during work you know so I come home and I drink a lot of water because I just that's what it takes and it's refreshing cool water is refreshing after, if you go out and cut the grass or you go out and whatever it is that you do hard work, there is nothing better than a fresh cup of cool water. I know some people would have a different beverage in mind, but I'm telling you water is better, okay? It satisfies you. When you think of Matthew chapter 5, verse 6 in the Beatitudes, remember Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be filled. He was talking about this time. They shall be filled. He says, now I I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. He says, I will give it to you freely. But notice in verse 8, the opposite is true for those who rejected him. In verse 8, it says, But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. You know, we, we've talked about very similar things over the last few weeks. so We're not going to go over this territory again. We've had a lot of judgment over the last few weeks. I think you guys got the point one observation that I do wanna take some time to point out is the very first one that's mentioned, but the cowardly. It's easy to understand why unbelieving, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, it's, it's easy to understand those, why they're cast in a lake of fire, but cowardly. It made me think a little bit about, like, how many times have you heard someone who boldly and defiantly, when, if, if they're in a, a serious conversation about eternity, somebody says, are you saved? Do you believe you're going to heaven or hell? And they will almost jokingly say, well, I guess I'm going to hell. <laughs> I, I guess that's where I'm going. And they say it in such a way that they think they're being very brave and edgy. Wow, look at the confidence of that person. They will truly be able to say, I did it my way. Yes, you did. And there's that sense of how brave they are. To go into eternity knowing they could go to hell. Wow, such a brave person. And God says, the cowardly. They're cowardly. You know why? We've been, uh, I know Irene has read a lot from uh, Larry Crabb, psychologist, that's a Christian psychologist. He wrote some pretty profound things, and I've read some of his stuff too, and it's been really good. This man was thoroughly... He was very realistic about suffering in this life and he was he was met by a lot of people's needs and there was a lot of suffering that he had to deal with constantly and as a psychologist he had to be able to explain these things and as a Christian psychologist he he would have to really dig into it a little bit deeper but one thing that I remember that I read that he said one time is you know he talked about the fact that Christianity is, is, in a sense, Christians tremble as they go through life. There's a sense of trembling that occurs as we go through this life due to suffering and hardships. We trust God, we know the truth, we know what it is, but there are things that happen such as cancer diagnosis or losses of financial security or you know, betrayal, any of those things that take place, health issues that happen and we follow the Lord but we tremble as we follow him. There's a very real sense to that. It doesn't make us cowards, it actually shows how brave we really are. Because even though we tremble, we follow. You know, bravery is not displayed in never having fear. We, we know that, right? Bravery is when you are confronted with fear and you still do what must be done. That's bravery. You know, when you think of the men and women who died on 9-11 as they ran into the towers that were on fire, as people were running out of those towers, and they truly understood the danger. See, most, most people that were around that area didn't completely comprehend the danger. But they're trained to look at the structure. They're trained to understand this is a dire circumstance and this whole thing can collapse. And when they push past the fear to still run into the place that they know may lead to their own death, that is bravery at the highest level because they understand the full consequences. And as Christians, we understand the full consequences. We understand when you follow Christ in this life, you will have tribulation. There will be things that will go wrong. There may be great suffering in your life for following Jesus. If we lived in other countries, we would understand it even more than we do here. Because for many, it's a death sentence. And yet they tremble as they follow him. They are not cowards. They are brave. The cowardly go with the flow to avoid anything that messes up their life. And the first thing that he says is the cowardly will be in the lake of fire. Because they were afraid to follow the inkling of the Holy Spirit that was tapping them on the shoulder, saying, there's more than this. This will never fulfill you. This will never satisfy you. They were afraid to tell their friends, I, I, I can't live this way anymore. I want to go to church. They were afraid to talk about, I went to church and man, what this, what this guy said really touched my heart. You know, they were afraid to pursue any deeper relationship. It was fear that kept them. He says, the cowardly, they'll inherit the lake of fire. Verse 9 begins to give a description of the New Jerusalem. It says Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the Holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God, the New Jerusalem. This is going to be, from my understanding and what I've been able to research, I really believe this is going to be the eternal dwelling place of the church. Because because in this portion, it is never clarified of this new Jerusalem ever touching base on earth. A lot of people believe that this will be something that will be hovering above the earth. And I can agree with that. A place where we will be freely, we will be able to freely able to go back and forth to just think about it because our bodies are not going to be limited. Jesus told us that. I don't know exactly how it's going to work, but you think about that. That we have access to the new heaven and the new earth, but there is the new Jerusalem as well. In verse 11, he begins to describe this place, this splendor. It says, having the glory of God, her light, her light was like a most precious stone, like a jasper stone, clear as crystal. It made me think of the Crystal Cathedral. Did you know that's, a, that's now a, a Catholic? Uh, I, I was going to call a mosque. Yeah, it's a Catholic church now. Yeah, the, yeah, the Christian Cathedral. Hmm. Uh, after she had a great, I'm sorry, After she had a great and high wall with 12 gates and the 12 angels at the gates, and the names were written on them, which are the names of the 12 tribes of the children of Israel. Three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. First of all, I want you to notice Israel. Notice that. The church does not replace Israel ever. Even in eternity, Israel still has its place. And then we see the mention of the apostles representing the church as well. In verse 14 it says, Now the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. Now again, there, everybody debates on was Paul on there or not, you know? Was it, was it the other one that was put on there? I mean, who, who, we'll find out when we get there, okay? <laughs> we'll know at that time. So you have the 12 tribes of Israel represented by the 12 gates, and you have the 12 apostles, which are represented on the 12 foundations of the wall of the city. And a lot of times the number 12 represents government. People will, will say those things, but you know, whatever reason he chose that, that's what he has. I believe it shows just the completeness of Israel and the church. All the more proof to me that, again, the church never replaces Israel, and they both will play a significant role in God's redemptive plan, and so much so that they will be forever recognized for all eternity. It made me think of the modern practice of getting your name engraved on a park bench or a church brick or whatever it is, you know, I mean... You have, you've donated, so you get your name on this brick, and there's so much like, wow, your name is on that. Boy, I'll tell you what, that, that takes it to a whole different level, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> then comes more details that I believe are intended really just to blow our minds. I don't know that we can fully put our minds around this stuff, but in verse 15 it says, And he who talked with me had a gold reed to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out as a square, its length is as great as its breadth, and he measured the city with the reed, twelve thousand furlongs. Its length, breadth, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, one hundred and forty-four cubics, according to the measure of man, that is, of an angel. The construction of its wall was of jasper. The city was pure gold, like like clear glass. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with all kinds of precious stones. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third that thing, the fourth emerald, the fifth serendox. the sixth sardius, the seventh chrysolite. the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth that, and the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each individual gate was of one pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. It's funny. We always talk about heaven like we're going to walk on the streets of gold. I'm like, I want to see the pearl that made up the huge gate. (laughs) You know? It's funny too. You think, again, of those things that we adopt. And it's like, I'm going to walk through that pearly gate. No, there's 12 of them. There's 12 of them. And Peter isn't at them. (laughs) You know? You know, 12,000 furlongs is equivalent to somewhere between 1,400 and 1,500 miles. 1,400 to 1,500 miles. Assuming it was 1,400 miles, Randy Alcorn in his book, Heaven, which goes way deep into Heaven, it's, it's a very good read. Makes my mind hurt a little bit. He says... A metropolis of this size in the middle of the U.S. would stretch from Canada to Mexico and from the Appalachian Mountains to the border of California. This is the best picture I could find. Drew, got it for you. <laughs> Think of that. That's the size of the city. On top of that, it's 1,400 miles high. Okay? He goes on to say, the ground level of the city will be nearly two million square miles. This is 40 times bigger than England and 15,000 times bigger than London. It's 10 times as big as France or Germany and far larger than India. But remember, that's just the ground level. Given the dimensions of a 1400 mile cube, if the city consistent uh, consisted of different le- levels we don't know this but if each story were a generous 12 feet high the city could have over 600,000 stories if they were on different levels billions of people could occupy the new jerusalem with many square miles per person people are like it's just not big enough how can that host everybody To put this in perspective, if you drive in Woodburn here and you notice that big, enormous building that's being built right there, right? The Amazon Distribution Center. It stands 105 feet tall. Have you seen how huge that building is? It's 105 feet tall. One mile, for those of you who are not bright like I am, and no, no, I'm just joking. That one mile, I had to look this up, is 5,280 feet. One mile is 5,280 feet. That building is 105 feet tall. It would take 50 of those buildings stacked on top of each other just to reach one mile. It would take 70,400 of those buildings to reach 1,400 miles high, which is the height of New Jerusalem. 70,000 of those buildings stacked on top of each other. Another reference, the tallest building in Portland is the Wells Fargo Tower. It's 546 feet tall. When you drive through there, look for the tallest building. It would take 10 of these buildings stacked on top of one another to make one mile. Now imagine 1,400 miles. It would take 13,538 of them stacked on top of each other to be that tall. And I doubt that God will run into the construction codes and the difficulties that our modern-day builders run into. So imagine what he could do with that amount of room. Guys, we're told some things about the New Jerusalem that, that we go, I can't comprehend this, but think about all the things we're not told about. He's just telling us the size and some of the stones that make up the building and and the pearly gates and all this. I mean, that's great information, but that's a taste of what it contains and what it'll be like. One other commentator, and this is definitely speculation, but I found it interesting. Henry Morris guessing that there will have been 100 billion people in the human race throughout history. So at the time he was alive, he said, let's just assume there's been 100 billion people that have lived. And let's just say that 20% of them got saved. He calculated that each person would have a block with about 75 acres On each face of the earth or of the new Jerusalem to call their own. 75 acres. If that were to be accurate. We're going to finish the rest of the descriptions of this place next week. But I want to end here with today asking this question. Is this what you think of when you think of heaven? Because most people don't. Most people don't think about this stuff. They think about angels floating around on you know clouds and yeah they think of playing harps and they think of all that stuff but they don't think about what god has revealed what god has actually said we don't think of those things you remember jesus he said in my father's house are many mansions if it were not so i would have told you i go to prepare a place for you And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Eternity was in view. He was talking about what we're learning today. It's not just that we will be in the actual presence of God, which is enough. Or that we will never experience the no-mores of the previous verses. Or witness the beauty of verses 15 through 21, which I can't even pronounce the names of the things that are the building materials. Or the eternal rewards that we know are coming our way. Or the reunion, of our, the reunion with our loved ones who passed away in the Lord. Or the ruling or reigning with Christ. It's it's, it's not like that's not enough. But look at what he's prepared. When he says, no one has even conceived of these things. There is no doubt no one has conceived of these things. Only God could dream up an eternal residence like that. And we still don't know the majority of what that entails. He just gave us a taste in His Word. You know, I pray that all of our hearts would long to be with Jesus. Actually, I I pray that we would thirst to be with Jesus, parched from this world. So that the first moment we are with Jesus and when we see all of this take place after the millennial kingdom and we see this new heaven and this new earth being formed and then we see the new Jerusalem coming down from God, it says, that would be like that cool cup of fresh water that nothing else could satisfy. That's what we should be longing for when we think of eternity. And that's what he has given us. Let's pray. Father, I I pray and I thank you, Lord, that you have given us just a taste, a glimpse of what eternity holds. And I can't do a good enough job explaining it, Lord. Your word gives us enough, but it's beyond our comprehension. I thank you, Lord, that you are greater than our thoughts, that you are greater than our abilities to understand. Lord, would you help our hearts to thirst for righteousness? Would you help us, our hearts to thirst to be with you, Lord? We want to drink of that water. We want to be refreshed by those things. And we thank you that you're God. You're the Lord who makes all things new. Would you help us to continue to be be being those new creations in Christ, continually transformed, Lord, as, as you promised to do in our lives? And let that be evidence to us of what you are going to do with the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem, Lord. We just look forward in anticipation and we know that we will never fully appreciate it until we see it. But grow that within us, Lord, that appreciation. We thank you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.